Can a limited company save you tax? Is definitely one of the most common questions that we get asked at the Medix Money podcast. And today we talk about this in detail. So we talk about what is a limited company and who can set one up. We talk about the benefits of a limited company, including whether or not you're likely to get any benefit from the tax. We talk a bit about how a limited company could help you with your annual allowance pensions issues. And we also talk about personal pensions for company directors. We also talk about the disadvantages, including the fact that you may not be able to contribute to the NHS pension scheme via the limited company and all the reporting requirements and a brief foray into the dreaded IR35. So hopefully this is a really good summary for those of you who are thinking about whether or not a limited company can save you tax. I've put the show notes below and there's also a really nice summary article in the links as well. The podcast is growing incredibly fast at the moment, over 15,000 listeners last month. And that is purely because people like you are listening to it, finding it useful and telling your colleagues about it. So thank you so much to anyone that's done that. It also really helps us to, if you leave a review in your podcast platform of choice, because that helps other doctors and dentists to find our podcast and start benefiting from the information. So thank you so much for taking the time to do that. Right, let's get into the introduction, the disclaimer, and then today's episode. I do also need to say we recorded this just before the Chancellor's autumn statement, and it's possible there might have been some changes to that in the autumn statement, but the blog article in the links below covers any changes. So just bear that in mind when you're listening. Welcome to the Medics Money Podcast. My name is Dr. Tommy Perkins, and I'm a GP. And my name is Dr. Ed Cantelow, a GP, but also a chartered accountant and a chartered tax advisor. And yes, you did hear that right. Not only is Ed a doctor, he's also a chartered accountant and a tax advisor. Medics Money empowers doctors and other professionals like you to make better financial decisions. As ever, this podcast is for entertainment only and does not represent any form of financial, legal or accounting advice and tax allowances and rates are subject to change. So on today's podcast, it is my pleasure to welcome back George Crow from Larkin Gowan. Hi, George. How are you doing? That's all I'm very well. Thank you. How are you? I'm good. So for those of that haven't listened to your previous episode, do you want to just give yourself the intro and tell us why you're qualified to talk about today's subject? Absolutely. Yeah. So I work for Larkin Gowan and within Larkin Gowan, we have a specialist medical team and I have been a part of that medical team for the entirety of my career, which spans 10 years at the moment and obviously is continuing. Over that period of time, I have dealt with a significant number of people within the medical sector, be that consultants, GPs, local GPs, salary GPs, you name it, I've come across it. And basically, I've discussed various different situations with them, which has led to me building up a fair amount of knowledge. Obviously, it's, it's a very vast sector. And I don't think you can ever know anything, know everything. So there's an area where you're learning. And indeed, the, the podcast provides various different insights, which are always useful. So yeah, thank you to Tommy and his team for putting that on for us. It does help broaden our knowledge as well. No, thank you so much for coming on because this is your second time on the podcast. Last time, it was nearly 10 months ago and we talked about loads of stuff, including the 1920 annual allowance compensation scheme. So definitely check that one out because you need to listen to that. But it was 10 months ago, and I think you and your partner had COVID at the time as well. 
Yeah. So my other half had COVID. She thankfully shifted that. She suffered from a little bit of long COVID as well. So she was quite tired. Um, I think there was more fatigue that was, was coming through. I somehow, don't know how, managed to avoid getting it. So we didn't do anything different. Carried on living as we normally do, um, sharing same living spaces. And somehow I've, I've managed to avoid it today, touch wood. So uh, I'm very count myself very fortunate um, after hearing all of the horror stories and indeed witnessing it firsthand. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that she's feeling better and she works in hospital as well. So really glad that she's feeling better. And you shut your door today because last time your little dog came in halfway through, which was pretty funny, to be honest. Yeah, I'm I'm hoping he won't make an appearance. We've just had the postman turn up. So that's the one that he normally tries to protect us from, given that he's all of half a foot tall. He's not really going to be the scariest dog in the world. So yeah, I'm hoping that he won't make an appearance. I think he's downstairs sleeping at the moment. So fingers crossed that stay that way. I'm hoping that he does make an appearance. So let's <laughs> let's see what happens. So today we are talking about limited companies, which we get loads of questions about. And so I thought it'd be really good to just revisit some of these issues and talk about them in a bit more detail. So shall we start by talking about who can incorporate a company? Yeah. So Anyone can incorporate a company. I can incorporate a company. You can incorporate a company. It's a relatively straightforward process. All you have to do is check to make sure that the company name that you're looking for isn't already taken. So if you want to incorporate Amazon, for example, you obviously wouldn't be able to do that. Um, so there's a few things that obviously limits in terms of what you can incorporate within the company. There are fees involved. So you have to register the company with company's house so that they have, know that you have set up a company and you have to pay them for the pleasure of setting up a, a limited company. Um, the one thing to mention is if you are setting up a company and thinking of doing the setup process and doing it yourself, the main thing to ensure is getting the structure of the company right at the very start. Because if you don't get it right at the start, changing any errors, anything that was incorrect at that point can become very complicated and can become very expensive to get a professional involved with fixing it. In particular, things like articles of association, share capital, number of shares issued, etc. They are areas where we commonly see mistakes being made. So if you are thinking of doing it, it is best to seek professional advice because we've obviously dealt with this across a vast number of clients. So it does always help to seek the advice of a professional to make sure that those mistakes are avoided and everything is set up appropriately from the get-go. Definitely. It's one of those things which seems really easy to do yourself, but it's actually incredibly easy to do incorrectly yourself. And uh, unfortunately, those errors tend to multiply throughout the thing. So as I say, get the structure right is definitely uh, key. So you set up your company what can you use that company for? It could be used for a wide variety of things, or indeed, nothing at all. Sometimes people will just set up a company to protect a specific name. So I might set up a company to protect George Crow Limited. Um, all that that means is no one else can set up a company with George Crow or George Crow uh, Accounting Limited because it's already got my name protected. It's already got that company set up. So not that I'm planning on doing that, obviously. But some people do set that set up a company. It's not the most expensive thing in the world to do. Once you set it up, there are things that you have to do on an annual basis. So even if it is set up, you still have to make sure that you're monitoring it and keeping it in check with the company's house. Once the company is set up, you can then use the company 
as a business, which trades either by selling goods or selling services. So within the medical sector, it's usually the selling services aspect of it, or indeed it can be used to hold investments, earning income from the investment. So that can be things like holding rental properties, holding stocks and shares, earning income from those investments as a way of trading through the business. Within the medical sector, the most common use of the limited company is for private work, whether that be out-of-hours work, seeing private patients, patients, locum work. Um, there's just a few examples. Like I say, it stems across the whole sector and there is no one company which is exactly the same as every other company. They are all individual and each individual uses their own company for different set, different things and different purposes. Yeah. So following on from what you just said, I mean, one question that we get asked all the time by GPs specifically is, can a GMS or a PMS contract be transferred to a limited company from the usual partnership or indeed a sole trader structure? That is a massive question. We're never going to do justice <laughs> to it in a single... We could talk about that for four hours. But just give us a quick tour of the things that you could think about if you were thinking about doing that? As you say, that is a huge question and one that comes up quite regularly. I'll briefly go through, see what the, the main points are. Usually, the answer to can I incorporate a company to put my GMS PMS contract through, usually the answer is almost always no. It is possible, but usually the answer is no. The reason that it's no is that Whilst contracts can be held by limited companies, provided that they're constituted and owned in the right way, and some, some companies do indeed hold the GMS or PMS contracts already, those that were awarded the contracts under the transition provisions in 2004, who have managed to incorporate their practices since. But almost all NHS contracts, and this is a well-known fact, GMS and PMS contracts are non-assignable. So they cannot be transferred to a third party without the commissioner's consent. And that's the key point. They cannot be transferred to a third party without the commissioner's consent. A company is a third party. It might be owned by the same people. It might be owned by the partners. And it might just be that you incorporate the partnership. But the company is still a third party. It's a separate legal entity to the shareholders and the directors. So incorporating company would technically involve termination of the existing contract within partnership or sole trade and then awarding that new contract to the company. So if a partnership or sole trader wishes to incorporate, then the commissioner will have to satisfy themselves that they have fulfilled their procurement obligation. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that the existing practice would win the contract in a competitive process. So there is a risk that obviously incorporating could see you actually lose your GMS or PMS contract. So even if the commissioners do agree that a contract can be innovated into a company structure, it's then a question of whether it is a worthwhile exercise, which is where you then get into a whole host of other questions and other details. And those are the sorts of things that we could obviously run on about for hours on end um, because, like I say, no one company is exactly the same and no one partnership is exactly the same. So it all depends on each individual circumstances. Um, obviously, it's, <laughs> we haven't got enough time today, unfortunately, to run through all of those, but hopefully that gives a little bit of a, an insight into whether a GMS or PMS contracts can be transferred to an company. 
Yeah. What I'm taking from that is that if you're even thinking about this, you need to speak to your accountant and your accountant really ought to be a specialist medical accountant. And we should think about doing a podcast on that, I think, because that would be of, we get asked this question by GPs all the time and yeah, it seems complex. All right. So let's move on and talk about the benefits, the pros of a limited company. So the benefits of a limited company, there are a few benefits. Um, the main one being, and particularly within the medical sector, is limited liability. So a company's liability is limited to anything that is owned by the company, whereas a partnership or sole trade isn't. So personal assets can be included in any claims against a partner or sole trader. So for example, if a, if a partnership was to be sued, it's not limited to the partnership assets, it's limited to the partner's assets. Um, so in, in theory, what could happen is they could come after your personal assets, your car, your home, etc. With a company, it is limited to the assets within the company. So therefore, the individual directors and shareholders, their individual assets are protected as a result of the limited liability structure of a company. That is one of the main reasons that we see people incorporate within the medical sector because they benefit from the limited liability. So that's one aspect. The other aspect is tax, a common theme and obviously something that everyone is keen to pay less of. A company at the moment pays corporation tax at 19%. Individuals and sole traders, if you're a higher rate or additional rate taxpayer within the UK, you'll pay 40 to 45% tax. Company tax is changing and it is a factor to be aware of. So if you're going forward, if you're Profits exceed £250,000, then the corporation tax rate will exceed, will go to 25%. Profits under 50000 will still be at 19%, and anyone within, with profits in between 50000 and 250000 will pay tax at a marginal rate, which will be based on where you are within that banding within 50000 and £250,000. Another benefit is the flexibility over when to access the profits personally and to then be taxed on those profits. So. As a company earns the money, the company is a completely separate third party to the individuals. It means that you have the ability to determine when you want to access the money and when you want to be taxed on that money. It's a much better tax planning perspective and tax planning venture because if you know that your income is going to be higher in a year for a specific example, it means that you don't necessarily have to take be taxed on the profits that you achieve within that year. You can defer them to be then taxed in the next year when earnings might be slightly lower by taking out the money at that stage. Whereas if you are self-employed or in a partnership, you're taxed on the profits as part of your self-assessment tax return. You don't have the ability to designate when you receive the tax or when you receive profits and when you are taxed on that money. So you're only taxed on the company money when you withdraw it. And the tax on the money that you withdraw from the company will either be or will depend on how you're taking it out. If you take it out as a salary, the company will pay the tax on the money for you via PAYE. The more common route is to withdraw it as dividends. Dividends at the moment are taxed at 7.5% for basic rate taxpayers, 32.5% for higher rate taxpayers, or 38.1% for additional rate taxpayers. It was recently announced in line with the national insurance contribution increase that those rates would also be increasing and those rates are, are increasing by 1.25% from April 2022 to help support the NHS and so, social care. 
linked into that is that you can ring fence the properties within the company. So rather than taking the income as personal income, which as a self-employed individual and partner, you don't have the option to do, you can leave them within a business. What that does is to alleviate some of the annual allowance tax issues, which uh, are touched on in previous podcasts. This was much more of an issue when the tapering threshold was at a lower rate, was at £110,000. Now that it's increased to £200,000, it is less of an issue, but it's still an issue. So if your taxable income is around that £200,000 threshold, putting the money through a company means that because you aren't taxed on that money, it doesn't form part of your threshold income amount. Obviously, if you withdraw it as dividends, it will be. But if you leave it within the company, it reduces your taxable income and your threshold income. So it might save you in terms of not having to pay as much tax for annual allowance tax charges. What you can then do with those reserves that you are building up within the company, providing that you aren't obviously withdrawing them, is you can either take them out as dividends throughout your retirement, effectively acting as a separate sort of pension fund to a degree, or alternatively, at the point in which you no longer need the company, you can strike off or liquidate the company. At the point of liquidating or winding up the company, you will then be taxed on the money as a capital disposal rather than as income tax which means that you are subject to the capital uh, distribution tax rates, capital gains tax rates, which are 10% for basic rate taxpayer or 20% for higher additional rate taxpayers. I'll come on to that into a bit more detail in a minute. Another benefit, which isn't really something that happens within the medical sector due to the NHS pension scheme being a great scheme, is that you can actually make personal pension contributions through company for the company's directors. Now, this means that you can make payments into a private pension scheme and those directors can then accrue a benefit um, for their pension when they come to retirement. As I say, those within the NHS pension scheme don't tend to do this simply because you already achieved a great pension from the NHS pension scheme and it's quite possible that you might already be incurring annual allowance tax charges. So putting money into a pension scheme wouldn't be tax efficient or indeed that you're already at the lifetime allowance limit. So again, putting money into a pension scheme wouldn't necessarily be tax efficient. Where it can be useful is if you've got a lower earning spouse that doesn't generate much or any income or hasn't got a very big pension. If you have a lower earning spouse, then you can put some pension contributions into a pension scheme for your spouse, provided that they are obviously set up on the uh, company as a director. What that does is to take money out of the company's taxable profits because it's a tax deductible expense. And it also means that you're building up a pension pot for that person. So it can be a useful planning perspective in terms of future planning opportunities and indeed tax mitigation. It can be useful from individuals monitoring their own taxable income and it obviously the main reason that we see people do it is limited liability. So there, there are a few of the benefits. Appreciate that that's quite a lot of detail in a relatively short amount of time. Um, but hopefully that explains some of the key points that are benefits for incorporating the company. That was a great whistle-stop tour of it. If that was too much information in a short amount of time, there's some show notes down below where, where George has written down his thoughts and you can read through them slowly in your own time because that was an amazing summary of the benefits. So. 
Shall we get on to the disadvantages or the cons of having a company? Because there are a few. Yeah. And obviously, where there are advantages, there are obviously disadvantages. So with a company, when you put the money through a company, you cannot pension those earnings. So if you are currently earning out of hours income that you are paying pension contributions on GDP solo, for example, because that would then be paid to a limited company, third party, not you as an individual, you cannot pension those earnings. So if you wanted to keep pensioning those earnings within the NHS pension scheme to boost your NHS pension, a company wouldn't be the right structure. It doesn't enable you to do that, doesn't enable you to pension the income in the NHS pension scheme. Another reason, another disadvantage is that, as we've already talked about, a company can be complicated to set up and making sure that the structure is right at the outset is extremely important. Like I said, retrospective changes to the structure, to articles of association, they are expensive and they will more than uh, more likely than not require the input of a professional, which obviously would then inquire or include them having to look back at what was done previously correct the issue, liaise with company's house, get everything sorted, would incur fees, incur costs as a result of changing the articles of association there and company's house as well. The other factor, which is a key factor, is that a company has a much greater administrative burden than a self-employed individual. So as a self-employed individual or partner, you complete a tax return on an annual basis, and that has to be submitted by the 31st of January each year, provided that it's submitted electronically. And that is all you have to do. You don't have to worry about any other aspects of it. A company, on the other hand, has a lot more requirements and a lot more things to complete and to file on an annual basis. So, for example, a company has to complete a full set of accounts, a filleted set of accounts, which is then filed at company's house a corporation tax return and tax computations to support the tax return, an annual confirmation statement. It has to maintain a person's or significant control register. And it also has to keep the statutory books of the company up to date, which includes things such as minuting um, meetings, minuting the approval of accounts, minuting dividends, completion of dividend vouchers if you then want to withdraw dividends from the company to support those dividends. It is a lot more labor-intensive on an annual basis to run and keep a company in check. If you don't do any of those specific set of specific things, the company can be struck off and then you're left with that company. The other thing that there is also a duty on is the directors. Now, the directors have to act responsibly in the interest of the company. And as a result, there's obviously significantly more expense in terms of running a company than there is uh, of running a self-employed individual. And that is an accountancy fee, usually. It's usually paid to an accountant. Obviously, it's possible to run and keep on top of a company individually. But as you can see, there's obviously a lot more on an annual basis that you need to do. So accountancy fees will usually be a lot more expensive as a result of using a company than using and then being self-employed or a partner. And indeed, even once you are set up as a company, it doesn't take away the fact that you have to complete a self-assessment tax return. Directors of a company still have to complete a self-assessment tax return. So the other thing to factor into this is, at the moment, it might just be you completing a self-assessment tax return. When you set up a company, it might be you and your wife or you and your husband um, set up as a the directors and shareholders. What that means is you've then got to complete all of the administrative tasks of the company 
you've still got to complete a personal tax return and your other half has also got to complete a tax return. So as you can see, it is significantly more work. It is going to be significantly more costly, but the benefits of it, providing that it's set up correctly, can be can outweigh the negatives. Another disadvantage, I seem to be listing these, uh, or a lot of these, uh, a company is a complete separate entity. So any income that you earn into the company is the company's money. So if you want access to that money, you then have to withdraw it, whether that be via a salary or whether that be via a dividend. And as I said, you have to complete the processes to do that. So if it's via a salary, the company has to run a PAYE scheme. It will have to submit real-time information submissions to HMRC. If it's via a dividend, the company will have to complete minutes and dividend vouchers to pay those amounts out to you. And you'll then pay tax on the amounts that are withdrawn. With a self-employed individual, any money that you earn, or indeed a partner, any money that you earn is your money and you're free to do with it as you want. One of the key things that we see people get in a muddle with is where they set up a company because they're still the ones doing the work and still the ones earning it. It's a common misconception that that money is still their money and they'll still use it for things that are of personal expense and personal nature. If that's the case, it's usually treated as a loan to the director um, and that loan has to then be repaid at the end of each year. Otherwise, the company will pay tax on it until that loan is then repaid. So it's key to make sure that you recognize that company is completely separate and it's not your money at that point to then be able to do with as you want. If you want to do it, uh, do anything with that money, you have to then withdraw that from the company. Dividends, as we've already touched on, are paid out of the post-tax profits. So the company will already pay tax at 19%, potentially going up to 25%, depending on what the profits of the company are. Individuals that then withdraw the dividends are taxed on the dividends that they withdraw, whether that be at 7.5%, 32.1%, or 32.5%, 38.1%. Whatever tax rate is applicable at that point and whatever tax band they're in will then pay tax at that. So it is possible that actually one of the benefits of it being a tax-sufficient structure, if you need access to all of the income within the company and are consistently earning the income within the company, withdrawing all of the money from the company every year, that actually a company could end up costing you more in tax as a result of needing to access the money because the company is paying potentially 25% tax on it and you're then paying potentially 39.35% tax on it after April 2022. As you can see, that would end up being more expensive than just paying a 45% self-employment tax on it. If you have a lower earning spouse that is going to pay tax at 7.5% um, or 8.75% post-April 2022, actually, that might become less of an issue. And this is where it becomes important that you speak to a professional because what they will be able to do is look at the scenarios, look at different extraction methods to work out what would be best for you and to make sure that it is a tax efficient structure, don't just blindly go and set up the company because it could end up costing you more tax and it might not serve the purposes that you want to do in the first place. I think that's a really good point as well. Basically, what you're saying is if you're going to draw out all of the profits every year from the company, chances are it's not going to work for you. Is that a fair summary? Pretty much, yeah. It can still work. Like I say, it depends on the structure of the company and those involved with the company. If you yeah. are a higher rate taxpayer or an additional rate taxpayer, you would obviously be taxed on all that income at 45%. Yeah. If you put it through a company and you had a lower earning spouse, for example, that didn't use any of their 
personal allowance, didn't use their dividend allowance, but obviously basic rate for taxpayers after that, you could benefit from having up to £14,500 out of the company for that individual completely tax-free. So even though you might be paying, or the company would be paying 19 25%, and then you as the other individual, the other shareholder would then be paying 3935 or 33.75% tax on it because you're getting essentially 14,000, 14,500 pounds out of the company completely tax-free. It can still be beneficial. And this is where it comes down to each individual circumstances and why no one answer can be given to each to a group of people. It is important to speak to someone about your specific circumstances to understand the specific scenarios relating to the company before making the decision or going down the rabbit hole because once you're in, you're in effectively. Yeah, 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 okay. And then the final disadvantage is IR35, everyone's favourite subject. So it's something that you should be aware of but isn't actually the responsibility of the company. So it's the responsibility of the employing authority so if we were doing business with someone, it's up to them to determine whether IR35 applies. So if IR35 does apply, then obviously using the company isn't relevant because they will have to put you through the payroll um, and they'll have to put you as the individual through the payroll. Providing that IR35 doesn't apply, then it's, uh, it's possible to use the company to trade and to earn income and to invoice that, that business for the work that you're doing. So it's something to be aware of and it's something to ask the question of before going ahead and setting up a company. The employing authorities should be able to tell you before you set up a company and before you say, I want to put all my money through the company or uh, the earnings through the company, whether IR35 will or will not apply. As long as they're happy and they're satisfied that it doesn't, then that means that you can go through the company structure. Obviously, if they say, IR35 will apply, then you should be on the payroll and you should be paying tax at source and you wouldn't then be able to put the company, not put the earnings through the company. So it's something to be aware of, but it's not necessarily something for the directors or the owners to make the decision on. Yeah, we've got a whole podcast on IR35, which is really useful. So check that one out. Okay, you touched on this a bit earlier when you said about dissolving the company, but what about when the company is no longer required? Yeah, again, this is a very big section. And again, it comes down to each individual circumstances. But when a company isn't required, it can either be bound up with the assets being distributed to the shareholders, or as I said before, you can leave it open um, and pay dividends out over a period of time until the company can then be struck off when it's got minimal assets and minimal amounts left within the business. The two options there have differing tax implications. So if a company is liquidated, the shareholders effectively are selling their shares in the business. Same way as if you sell shares in any other business, whether that be a listed company within the FTSE 100, whatever, any gains or losses that you make are subject to capital gains tax, not income tax. So proceeds are then taxed at 10% or 20%, depending on whether the individual is a basic or higher rate taxpayer. The other thing to mention here is some business asset, or is, is a relief that's currently in place, which is business asset disposal relief. It was formerly called entrepreneur's relief, and they've changed the name to business asset disposal relief. And as long as certain criteria are fulfilled, then 
any gains, capital gains on disposal, up to £1 million per person are taxed at 10% rather than 20%, regardless of whether the individual is a high rate taxpayer or not. So it is a very useful relief, which is currently in place for those who leave profits within the company and are then looking at the point in which that company is no longer retired to release those funds to them as an individual. Providing that the company meets the criteria at the point in disposal, at the point of liquidation, business asset disposal relief does apply, the individuals will pay tax at 10%. You will also, each individual benefit from the annual exemption amount, which is currently £12,300. So there's automatically £12,300, which you're not paying tax on. And even if business asset disposal relief doesn't apply, the maximum tax rate at present is 20%. Now, to put that into perspective, if you earned the income as a self-employed individual or partner and you were a higher or additional rate taxpayer, you would pay tax at 40% or 45%. Through the company, it's possible that you would be paying tax at 19% through the corporation tax return, potentially up to 25%. And then if business asset disposal relief does apply, you're then paying tax on the post-tax profits which are left within the company at 10%. Even if business asset disposal relief doesn't apply, the maximum rate that you're currently paying on is 20%. So in terms of the tax efficiency over the course of the life of the company, it is possible and probably likely that you would end up paying less tax as a result because you would have the 19% corporation tax release or not 19% corporation tax and then 10 or 20% business asset disposal relief or capital gains tax at the point in which the company is no longer required and that would equate to a tax rate of less than 40% or less than 45%. So it can be beneficial to do it that way. The alternative, as I said, was to leave the company open, withdraw the money as dividends. Those amounts are still subject to the income tax rates and they would be subject to the dividend tax rates, which obviously we touched on earlier. So that is at the moment. Now, there has been conversations in the past and it has been mentioned over a couple of years that business asset disposal relief will go and capital gains tax will be something that will be touched on potentially within the budget. Now, they said that about the last budget, they said that about the budget before, and there was no mention of them. Obviously, we've got a budget coming up very soon, and by the time this podcast is published, it might well have already been. But it is possible that those capital gains tax rates and indeed the, bis- the availability of business asset disposal relief may go. Now, if that does happen, then this whole piece of advice <laughs> and piece of uh, tax legislation may well change and may well significantly change how beneficial a company can be if this is your plan to build money up within the company and to then either drip feed it out at the end of the period, end of the useful life of the company, or indeed liquidate it at the end point. One other thing to mention here is this is when a company is no longer required. What you can't do is after five years of having a company and you've built up £100,000 within the company, but you're still going to use a company to trade you can't liquidate the company, set up a new company to perform the same trade. There is targeted anti-avoidance rules in place for that, and that is called anti-phoenixing, um, effectively liquidating the company and then 
hey, presto, a new company rises up out of the ashes of that um, previous company. What HMRC will say at that point is, you've just withdrawn the money from the company. For our purposes, we're going to say the company never stopped trading, never ceased, never liquidated. Therefore, that amount that you've withdrawn is income. So we'll tax it under the dividend tax rates, which could then mean that you're paying tax at potentially 39.35% and completely negating or going against what you had planned to do with that disposal and with that liquidation. So again, it's important to understand the scenario before you look to do that, because if you do want to continue using the company for the same sort of trade, then liquidating and reinventing a company isn't the right process. Yeah, good point. And definitely a good point about we're recording this at the end of September 2021. There's an autumn statement, as George said, coming up. So keep an eye on that. But that also raises a fun little game, crystal ball time, because Entrepreneurs Relief was 10 million, I think, a few years ago. Then they reduced it down to 1 million. Crystal ball time, do you think it's going to go anywhere and change? It's difficult to really say because I think they still want people to be entrepreneurial. They still want people to set up businesses because obviously with raising the capital gains and the corporation tax rate, sorry, up to 25%, it means that they could recoup a fair amount of tax through that way. Um, So they are still going to want people to set up companies and still going to want people to run through the companies. Now, I think in terms of business asset disposal relief being around, it is possible that that will go because capital gains tax rates are still beneficial. Even if you are taxed at 20%, it's still beneficial compared to being taxed at 40% or 45%. So there is a possibility that business asset disposal relief may go. The alternative is that they change the capital gains tax rates or they change the rate applied. So obviously the company, the, the country is in a massive deficit as a result of COVID and the funding and furlough scheme, the retention scheme that was put in place, the self-employment um, income support scheme, all of those schemes have led to the country being in a deficit. So they are wanting to recoup some of that money. How they will go about it, I don't know. I think one thing is for certain, there are going to be changes to tax legislation. We've obviously already seen it with national insurance contributions rising and tax on dividends rising. I think Capital gains tax is something that they could look at. Like I say, they've mentioned it before. It's been mentioned in the run-up to budgets in the past. So it's not as though it would be a shock if there were changes to it. I would expect there to be a mention of it within the budget, but I expected that at the last budget, and I was quite happily, uh, quite happy to be proved wrong. <laughs> so I'm think- I've got my fingers crossed that that will remain the case and it won't be an issue, but I would be prepared for something to come out what I can sort of, what I sort of think will come. I think there will be changes. Yeah, wild speculation. Stay tuned. We are going to do another budget special episode of me and Ed, like we did last time the budget came out. So that will be coming real soon. I reckon business asset disposal relief will be all right, but the difference between capital gains tax and income tax just strikes me as a very low hanging and very. It's going to generate a lot of tax if they change that. So that seems obvious the place for me, but we'll find out in a couple of days, I think. So that's exciting. George, thank you so much for doing that. I know 
people find these things so useful and just have it set out really nice and clearly there. There are George's written notes in the show notes below. So check those out. If people are liking what they're hearing, George, or want to uh, see your dog or go for a dog walk with you, <laughs> what is the best way to get hold of you? <laughs> so the best way is via email, phone call. Um, so please, my contact details will be in the notes as well. Perfect. So I'll have my email address in there. Feel free to ping me an email and I will respond as soon as possible. And obviously, we'll more than happy to have a conversation. We offer a completely free initial meeting notification. So if you just want to have a discussion about things, more than happy to have a, a sit down with you um, just to run through any queries or any concerns that you might have. And we can then always, always go on from there. Brilliant. Thank you so much for your time today, George. Uh, better go feed and walk the dog, eh? No, thank you, Tommy. And yeah, he's probably going to start going mental in a minute, so I'd better go and, uh, go and tend to him. <laughs> Thanks for your time. Catch up again soon. Yes, Tommy. Thank you.